Welcome to the Being Human UTU podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UTU podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Welcome to the Being Human Utah Tech University podcast. This is episode four. We've got a wonderful show lined up for you. And before we get started, there are a couple of things we wanted to talk about. We are now available wherever you get your podcasts, and we would like you to subscribe and listen to all of our episodes. We've got some great ones out there. Jim, in particular, I think the Scott Hartley podcast um, was a good episode. Yeah, we keep we keep moving moving on up. <laughs> that, that was episode three. So um, listen to all of them, but, but Scott Hartley, the venture capitalist and uh, um, Stanford grad, had a lot to say about technology and humanities, and it was a really, really enlightening conversation for us. You may have noticed that we've had some changes and tweaks to our name as we've been getting this podcast off the ground this past year. Just know that we're in a time of transition at our university. The name of our university is changing, as we've talked about. And we're really just kind of trying to roll with the punches on the name change. I, I think it's this time this semester also, I've been talking to my students a lot about revision. And uh, this is an exercise in consistent revision. <laughs> that's a, that's a great, that's a great uh, comparison, definitely. Um, well, I wanted to ask you a question, Jim, to start. Mm -hmm. Here we are, episode number four. Are you feeling like a podcast expert now? So I've learned, I've taught long enough to know that the minute I feel like an expert, that's when I'm probably not doing very well. <laughs> and so, uh, no, I don't, I don't. I, 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 well, but it's a good thing. I, I feel like I keep growing. Um, I, I feel more comfortable, uh, kind of similar to teaching. I feel... Like I can talk on the microphone a little bit more comfortably, but I, I also don't think I'm in a place where I'm like, ah, yeah, I've mastered this. <laughs> I'm not at the mastery stage if we're putting a rubric together. Nothing else to worry about. We've, we've got it down. Yeah, I think my feelings are kind of similar. In fact, on the way over, walking over to the studio today, I was thinking for the three previous podcasts, I have this idea, oh, these are great topics and we're going to have this great sort of informal conversation about them. And I think in all three of the episodes, from my standpoint, my performance has been more formal and wooden than I wanted it to be. You know, you've got to kind of toe a line. I've talked to you a lot about my annoyance with the podcasts that are maybe too conversational and they're on a certain topic and they just talk to each other for the first 30 minutes before they even get into their topic. So I don't want to go that far, but at the same time, I don't want to sound too stiff and too formal. And, and I, I like your, again, your comparison to teaching because I think that's how I used to be in the classroom and it took a long time to get comfortable you know, speaking in front of a small audience granted in a classroom, but speaking in front of an audience on a regular basis. And I, I think maybe I could say my, my first couple of podcast performances probably sounded a lot like my early days teaching as a master's student at Utah State. I can, I can imagine the nervousness and tone of, uh, in, in my voice, the, the seriousness, all of that was probably very very uh, reminiscent of me beginning that process. So yeah, I'm with you improving constant improvement. That's what we're striving for. 
and good pacing. I mean, you're right. <laughs> it, you know, we're, we're, we're under five minutes uh, in, in the podcast and we haven't. I know that sometimes when I teach and I uh, start talking about something in my life um, and then I hit the 15 minute mark in a 50 minute <laughs> class, I go, oh, wow. I'm, so this is good. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about my life or my vacations. <laughs> you, know, right now. you know, uh, you know, I was walking my dog last week yeah. and I had this experience. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even own a dog, as you know, so we're yeah. not going to go down yeah. that road either. So instead, we're going to stay focused and we're going to talk about humanities and technology, but we're going to talk particularly about something that's um, very close to, to us, both of us, as well as the guests that we have today, and that is our master's program here at um, Dixie State, soon to be Utah Tech University. And so we have a guest with us in the studio. Dr. Joy McMurrin is an assistant professor of English, and she is also the coordinator of the English department's technical writing and digital, digital rhetoric program. So Dr. McMurrin, Joy, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, so um, we're um, both Joy and I teach within the the master's program, um, and so I mean I can lend some some thoughts, but you are deep in it. <laughs> in fact, um, this these past several weeks you've been working on thesis projects. So I mean you're you're immersed. Um, in fact, you have even. Are those papers you have in front of you, are those related <laughs> to well, what you're doing? <laughs> well, I knew the topic today was uh, this intersection of technology and humanity, so I just grabbed a few papers out of my binders and mm-hmm. and a couple of things, maybe just to help guide some of my thoughts. But. Mm-hmm. Hey, where do you see it? It's kind of a unique program. Uh, because we had to prove ourselves, I mean, this is just my interpretation, we had to prove ourselves to be a, par- a master's program that wasn't just a traditional rhetoric and composition program. It wasn't a traditional English master's. We also wanted to connect with a mission to connect the, the humanities and technology. Um, do you, how did this program come about You know, in, in its early stages? Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, we had attempted to think about and begin proposing a master's program program in our English department a couple of times, and Randy was at least involved in some of those early discussions and efforts. And um, as we started to adopt a polytechnic mission and our provost had some very um, focused ideas about where he wanted to take our university, we realized that we would probably have a better chance with the technical focused master's program. So we proposed that, and by we, I mean primarily Dr. Sheree Crenshaw. She did most of the early legwork on writing that proposal and that white paper. Jim, you and I helped with some of the research in in getting that proposal ready. Um, You know, we had a lot of the discussions within our department that I think any department proposing a technical writing master's program would have. And we know from papers in our field, from discussions we've had with our mentors and colleagues across the nation, that this sort of split, and some people even call it territorialism. I don't know that we I would go that far in our department. I, I didn't necessarily feel that. Um, but there is a tension and, and a 
an assumption of a division there that we had to work through as a department. And we really had to think through what is our mission and, and where does it belong? Does it even belong in an English department? And so we had to defend that. And we defended that with the history and the traditions of our, of our technical writing field. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people see technical writing as a skills-based rather than a uh, humanities-based or a, a philo- philosophical kind of discipline. And so we had to kind of defend ourselves, I guess. Yeah, I, what's was funny when this program came about, it, it reminded me of when, so I, I got my bachelor's in literature um, and then I applied to a rhetoric and composition program and I honestly had to ask someone like, what is rhetoric and composition? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And someone, th- the best explanation I got was that rhetoric ties us to a classic tradition Composition is a practical need that's happened more in the modern university. It's something that, you know, we didn't have intro comp in the 1700s. But, and so I saw this bridge between um, a, a classic foundation and a traditional foundation and a, and, and a modern necessity. And I almost see our program shifting even further uh, to, to be meeting the more technological needs uh, of our students. And... And so it still grounded in tradition, grounded in what the bedrock is of a university, but then also pushing forward and saying, all right, we're, 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 we're moving into a 21st century model of, of what a workforce looks like, of what um, our, our students are looking at after they graduate. Um, but when you're talk when you were talking about this, it reminded me of the fact that, you know, it seems really it seemed really exciting to me, and I don't know about either were you, to have a master's program. I'm like, wow, that'd be really cool. Like teach master's courses. That, that it's almost fulfilling a dream of when I was a PhD student. I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach a master's <laughs> course. But then when you look into it, you think, is this a good idea? <laughs> well, well, this is going to be a lot of work, and there's a lot and. I was even thinking a lot of programs don't have to actually justify themselves. They don't. They don't have to be like, well, we're just going to have a, a a PhD in in English literature. There's no justification. That's just what you you have. And and in this, we had to justify a lot um, to for its relevance to to be part of the um, the master's lineup. Um, yeah, yeah, we we did, and I th- I think that um, grounding our defense or our case in the literature of our field really helped us. Um, I was thinking about last week of a friend of ours uh, gave us a really old yellow ripped out article from an old, I think, Salt Lake Tribune. And it was a quote from my husband's uncle, Sterling McMurrin, who was the provost at the University of Utah in the early 60s. And he was the commissioner of education for uh, JFK. And so somebody somehow had this old article and they gave it to my husband. So we've been um, having conversations for a week or more in our home about this very topic. I... uh, if you'll give me a second, I, I took a snapshot of it. Oh. Um, so he gave an, an, 
a speech in Ohio, and then the Salt Lake Tribune reported on that. And in that, he said, in addition to the large problem that we have in establishing civil rights, equality of economic opportunity, and equality in education and cultural opportunity, we face the enormous task in the future of creating conditions within the framework of a technological society which will be compatible with the cultivation of the human personality. And Sterling McMurrin said that in 1964-ish, maybe, 66. And it's still relevant today. We feel like we're still facing this. In 1922, um, Joseph uh, Strykowski, who was an art historian, gave a speech in Boston where, so 1922, this is 100 years ago, almost exactly, he gave uh, a, a lecture in Boston, and he kind of, I don't know that he coined the term, but it was the, it got, the first that got a lot of attention, and he called it the crisis of the humanities, and we're still talking 100 years later about the crisis of the humanities. So it's interesting that this is an ongoing conversation. Some people ha have said, are we just a bunch of hypochondriacs <laughs> where there really isn't a problem? We just keep complaining about these ailments that aren't very serious or, or um, have terminal threats. But I think there is a crisis um, because of technology and we have to learn how to marry our our humanity, our ethics, our human-centered approach to technology, and that technology should always be in the service of humans and not the other way around. It feels like humans are often in the service of technology. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, it reminds me of when we were talking to Scott Hartley last, was this idea that that we are crucial, that human beings are crucial to this, this process. And, and it is very odd when you look at the, the different disciplines and how humans become an, almost an inconvenience or a, a, um, a frustration to the process. That if we're seeking out perfection or we're seeking out a certain ideal and we're not looking at the humanity of certain people, um, that we're looking at the technology to weed out that, um, that, that that's not a great direction to go. Um, you know, and it, with this, the way that we're preparing our students, I mean, one of my thoughts with with our master's students is that we want them to also, I know that it's preparation for the workforce, but I also think about finding them a home. You know, how does the English major find a home in this technological society? Um, that they're very valuable in their workforce, but they uh, might feel like right now that, you know, contributing to the hypochondria you're talking about, just feeling like, why, why would I go into the humanities? I should go into engineering. I should go into tell sciences because that's where the technology is. And there's no technology in a pen and paper, <laughs> even though they are. Both of those are technologies. <laughs> you're kind of leading into the next question. And um, what I have written down here for the next question is that on the website of the program, on our English department website, it talks about preparing the students for the modern workforce. So you've talked a little bit about that. How exactly does your program 
make it so that students are ready for the modern workforce. Because, you know, you hearken back to, to Scott Hartley, who we spoke to in February, and, and when he was here on campus, he also brought up this idea that, you know, that workforce changes so rapidly, and what's going to be important for graduating seniors 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we, we don't even really know. So how do you approach the process of making our students in the um, technical writing and digital rhetoric master's program ready for the modern workforce? Well, we've taken a few lessons from our mentors, I think, um, as I have said, across institutions across this uh, nation. They learned that maybe, let's say, in the 70s or 80s when they were focused on very particular skill sets like um, today we might say those things include coding or understanding, having some felicity with in design or something like that, that those things are ephemeral and they may not last um, through a person's career. So a program that focuses on those kinds of dynamic and always changing skill sets, um, those students may not, they may get a job quickly, but they may be ill-prepared for a lasting career. So uh, our program really focuses instead on the philosophies of technical communication. We talk about um, building community, and we really focus on a human-centered approach. Um, in our field, we call call this UCD, user-centered design, or UX, user experience, UI, user interface. I kind of wish we would replace the U with H and say human-centered design, human experience, instead of user experience. Um, be, of course, every time we're talking about users, we are talking about humans, but I, I kind of wish that we, the language that we chose really uh, confirmed and revalidated over and over and over what it is that we're really doing. Um, so by focusing we in our critical theories class, which is a required course for all of our students, um, we really do start with the foundations, the classical foundations that Jim was talking about Socrates and Aristotle, and and we spent a little time with Plato, but uh, um, we really are starting with the the classics and reaching it out across the globe and across eras. We spend some time with, um, I almost said Kevin Bacon, <laughs> Sir Francis Bacon. We could you could we do spend some time Six in our, our master's program on Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Six a little bit of footloose, a little bit of... He, he, definitely, you know. he definitely deserves a knighthood. It should be <laughs> Sir Kevin Bacon. Oh. We, we think about this scientific model through a rhetorical lens. We think about, and then we jump ahead into um, the 20th century scholars, Tolman, and, and um, then we move into our, our modern scholars, and we spend some time... Um, with with people like uh, scholars like Carolyn Miller and Paul Dombrowski and Pat Sullivan, who 40 years ago were really pushing in our field for a humanistic approach to technical communication, and they were really the among the first in our field to to usher in what we call the humanistic turn. And now today, scholars like um, 
uh, like Kristen Moore, who was my mentor at Texas Tech, and Natasha Jones and Rebecca Walton, who's a um, up at USU, Utah State University. Um, they are uh, documenting and ushering in the uh, social justice turn today and doing some of the similar work that uh, folks like Carolyn Miller and Pat Sullivan were doing, you know, a couple of decades ago. So um, uh, advocacy, coalition building, uh, really thinking about vulnerabilities and precarity and taking an ethical approach. So we feel like those are lasting principles that if you understand what's driving, in other words, if you understand the why, then the how can be taught and learned pretty quickly, either in autodidactic ways or or you know some online classes. Anybody can um, learn sort of the skills du jour, but if you, I think you really have to have a strong foundation, so the lens through which you look and the ideas through which you approach problem solving in in communication uh, can they're um, they can be transferred across jobs. They can be transferred across contexts, um, but they're lasting and, and they mean something. So that's what we focus a lot of our education on. So we're preparing them to be critical thinkers, I think. Well, I mean, it, it makes me think about a subject that we've talked a lot about in this podcast, which is, you know, we're, we're often focusing our, we're focusing the humanities and and helping our students to be nimble, um, to to be able to understand that their skills, you know, that, that are are very important to the professional world, but you know it's not immediately evident. And so, but when you talk about it, I, I mean, I, I think about when I was preparing for the, the course I teach, is, which is on visual rhetoric, and uh, two things stuck out to me when I was researching it is, man, there's a lot of my work is just focused in the 20th century. And, you know, what does Foucault say about visual rhetoric now? And I was really concerned about the fact that, you know, our visual understanding of the world is, isn't, is different even from 2005. <laughs> I mean, even five years ago, our, our visual world is, is, changing so rapidly how are these works even relevant to these students but then it it made me realize that all of these foundational works all of these things that we've been figuring out ever since you know the the camera came about it, these are very important to think about and they are very relevant to how these students are going into the professional world and understanding how surveillance how um, how visuals are a, a means of persuasion, a means of marketing, a, a, a means of conveying information in a, in a clear way. I mean, all of these things are, are, are professional skills that they're, they're growing into that, that we are breaking down in our master's program. And so it, it, it is a sort of, a, um, like you said, an understanding that that we're, as we're growing and understanding what the program is about, we're also figuring out how we are in our understanding of the, 
the, I, I'm I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> That's okay, Jim. <laughs> I, 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 I'm finish my train I'm of thought. I'm picking up what you're laying down. Well, it's interesting. You, you know, you thinking about um, visual rhetoric today um, and visual communication, just visual information, data visualizations, and the way that we we're sort of in this like fast food sort of world where we want everything to be very convenient and quick and cheap, right? And communication is no different. We're, we're um, in some ways, the internet has, I mean, I would glorify it all day long because I think that it has really improved our access to information. But also it, you know, it's a lot of fat and sugar and preservatives and it's really bad for us in some ways too. So we have to be careful and and teaching our students to be not only savvy consumers of information, especially visual and this sort of fast food nature of communication, um, but but also very savvy producers, and not not just savvy as in sophisticated because sophisticated can be unethical, right? Um, so we really do put a primacy in our field on ethics. And Jim, you're probably familiar with the Stephen Katz uh, article on, um, he, he brings in a memo written by, I think his name was Just, uh, who was an officer in, the, in World War II. And he wrote a memo that was very technical and gave all of the information that it needed to convey um, to make things happen. And but he referred to um, he referred to those who who were captured in in the van uh, referred to in the memo as units instead of as people. And um, I bring this up because Stephen Katz in that article said that technical writing without ethics is not technical writing. It may be writing. It may be communication, but it is not of our field. And to understand technical communication means to take this ethical approach to it. And so how do we interpret information? I mean, there's so much said today about misinformation and disinformation. And how easy is it not just to consume it, but to create it and disseminate it across our platforms? So I do think that, and and visual more than anything else, I mean, you think about the visual information we were sort of brought up with compared to today. I think young people especially have a challenge in interpreting all of that. But um, yeah, I, th I think visual Im information is, is incredibly important to the way we think about technical communication. Um, but the other thing that, that you were talking about made me think of in my undergrad class, in my business writing class, I often from time to time, you know how we do as professors, we recycle uh, content and bring it in uh, periodically into our different courses. So um, I don't know, a handful of times I've brought in a, a case study um, and I won't bore you with the details of it, but basically um, I ask them to solve an ethical dilemma related to a pacemaker company and a faulty part and all kinds of things. And I ask students to think of the stakeholders. And often in my business writing class, and this is really no diss on business students, <laughs> but 
but uh, often in my business writing class, they think of the stakeholders and the problem in a couple of ways. They want to avoid litigation and they want to maximize profit. And in my technical writing class, um, they're more, they have a more willingness to look at the patient um, and the patient needs. So in my business writing class among those students, they, it takes a, a, many of them a, a little bit of time to come around to seeing that it isn't all just about lawsuits and shareholders uh, and profit. So as soon as you introduce this humanistic approach of thinking about that case, they all kind of have this moment of realization like, oh yes, of course, the person who's actually wearing the pacemaker should be involved in some of this decision making. It's a little easier for my technical communication rather than my business communication students to see that. And I don't know why exactly except that we have this very humanistic ethic, ethical approach, this idea of informed choice that, that the user is part of the decision making process. Well, I mean, I guess you, you hit upon what I was trying to say, <laughs> which was that we, we have an intuitive reflective process or not, not intuitive. We're, we're tapping into this reflective process that a student would have that maybe somebody focused in, in another discipline wouldn't be as focused on. And that when I think of ethics, you know, I don't want to diminish the importance of ethics, but I also want to start at a real simple stage of, are you thinking about the things that you're doing? Um, when you talk about the cats article, you know, it, it, the minute you just start thinking about product and movement of product and not humanity, mm -hmm. that's the minute that you've sort of abandoned, you know, the larger big picture of us living in this world together. And, you know, you need people out there to say, wait a minute, uh, how does this affect human beings? Or wait a minute, have you considered what, I, I even think just stopping and saying, why are we doing this? That's an important question that sometimes seems inconvenient in other disciplines. Why would anybody stop, st stop everything? Why are we doing this? Yeah. <laughs> that seems inconvenient, but it's really important that you have somebody in the room. I mean, even going back to what uh, our, when we talked to Scott Harley, that I read that in, that conversation was that you just don't want to have the same people in the room just thinking the same way is that you need somebody to press the pause button and say, why are we doing this? Yeah. How does this impact people? Are, are we including everybody that's impacted in this process? I mean, sometimes it doesn't even come to our minds that you would invite the, the consumer, the user <laughs> into, yeah. the, into the room. Exactly. I, I, was, I like that you say, why are we doing this? But then also really important question, who does it impact? And who are the, we often get so focused on the primary audience that we forget about secondary and tertiary, um, not just audiences, but implications. What's, what's the potential ripple effect and, and who, who is this assisting and who is this harming and how can we mitigate harm? Uh, as we're thinking through communication is, and especially communication 
about and for technology. Um, so that's where the technical, I think, and, and human intersection comes in and why we belong in the humanities college in an English department. We're really thinking in some ways, and I, I would even dare say that most of us in technical communication have a literary background um, and have come out of programs where we have have spent at least some of our um, time in academia in in literature studies. And I see a lot of comparisons, a lot of ties. I borrow from my literature background often as a technical writer. I do think we are housed in the right place, at least in our institution. I, I don't know about where others are housed. I know this has been a long debate for half a century. Where, where does the technical communication um, program belong. I've, I've been told that even at this institution by a colleague that we belong in the business department, I thought, well, that wouldn't be too bad. I'd get an automatic $30,000 a year raise. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, you know, philosophically, I think we're in the right department. We have a literature professor right here with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm just fascinated by, by, by what I'm hearing. And I really like the approach that you're taking. I kind of took two terms, that one that each of you used and put it together. I really like this idea of you're creating nimble critical thinkers because I get frustrated sometimes when I talk to people outside of the humanities and if I talk about, hey, you know, whether it be referring to students, whether it be referring to colleagues, you know, here are people with this training in the humanities that can be very, really valuable to you. And often I get the response of from someone outside the humanities of, yeah, you're right. I really could use someone to, you know, help me with my writing or edit my writing. And that's it. That's where they think the contribution comes from. And sort of the broad description that you're giving about how you're training your students, how you're preparing your students for the workforce makes it clear that that's, you know, that's a very small part of the kinds of contributions that those students can make. And I know we keep harping on this, but it directly connects to what to what Scott Hartley was saying to us in February. And I think of all the things that he said, both in his visit to campus and in our podcast was we want humanities people, but we want them doing humanities. We want them doing the things they're trained in when they get into the workforce, as opposed to, you know, like we said, learning how to code and being a mediocre coder. And every time I think of that phrase, I think of myself as a graduate student at Utah State sitting in front of a computer with a, with a yellow HTML for dummies book. And, you know, that was it. I was going to, my whole world was going to change once I learned HTML and, you know, all of a sudden HTML wasn't the thing anymore. So uh, I really like what you have to say about your students and with students in mind, let's kind of take it to the local level. Um, both of you teach classes in this program. Both of you, like you said, were very excited about the prospect of teaching master's students and you've talked a little bit about some of the, the, the way that you construct your courses. So I'm curious, what have been your experiences teaching master's students? Teaching them in this particular program, yes, but also teaching master's students in general. I think it's been wonderful. I, you know, as I think about the students with whom I work, I 
think of them as colleagues. I think of them as peers. They're so bright and so eager to contribute um, important work. And it's just a different vibe, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, um, and m maybe part of that, what I've learned too, is I need to put more trust in my undergraduate students that they can, that they too can rise to the challenge and the occasion. Um, but our, our graduate students seem particularly ready to jump in and do the work and the this heavy intellectual lifting for us. And so I often tell my students, and this is true, that that I'm learning all the time. I'm learning from them. It, it's funny. You put it so much nicer of, of, of rising, hoping your, your uh, undergraduate students will rise to the occasion. I, and maybe it's my experience with, for the first year experience and spending so much time trying to stoke that fire. Like it, it sometimes it feels like with freshmen, undergraduate students, you're, you're, you're trying to light that campfire so mm -hmm. badly. You want, you know, like trying to use whatever sticks possible, <laughs> whatever paper and lighting it and trying to get that, that fire to burn bright. And when you, you have a master's student, I mean, they're just coming in and they're just a big roaring fire of, of excitement of, they want to do the learning. I mean, and there are many times when I, I walked into master's level courses and I thought, this is so easy to teach this because I'm not doing the heavy lifting of trying to get them to be excited about the content. They're already excited about the content. They want to get into it. They want to pursue it and, and wrestle with it. Mm -hmm. And that the, the change of demeanor with this is important and this is relevant as opposed to going in. I almost feel like in an undergraduate course, I'm often a salesperson. Like this is important mm -hmm. and this is why it's important. And I have to keep in, it's exhausting to cover the content and sell it. You don't have to sell it to the master's students. They're, they know it's valuable. They just want to dig further into it. And yeah. Uh, the fire metaphor is a good one, but uh, having, I'm uh, as I'm the coordinator for the program, but I'm also the academic advisor for all of the students. So I work with them pretty intimately about their short and long-term goals. And uh, I have to say 100% of our graduate students have imposter syndrome. Oh yeah, yeah. They all think that their fire is smaller than everyone else's. <laughs> And, and you tell them, you're like, no, like you <laughs> yeah. are brilliant and you yeah. just need to like embrace that. Yeah. They all have their own thing. What I, what I love about our discipline and what our, and I'm seeing it manifested in our program all the time is that our discipline marries well to almost any other discipline. I can't think of a discipline out there where t technical writing thinking and rhetorical thinking couldn't improve that discipline in some way. And so we have students who are um, grant writers, web designers. Uh, we have a student who's very interested in, in agriculture. Um, he, he wants to um, build up and really have a, a working farm, but he is also interested in farming education. And so he's working a lot with information design and pedagogies and technical communication and how do I persuade people to be more interested in, in agricultural thinking. And um, so that's been interesting to watch. We have uh, another student who is an engineer. We have another student who is 
um, a YouTuber, and, and she's defending her thesis uh, this week, actually. And she's thinking about um, generating more viewers through better narrative. We have students interested in um, military identity, military communication, military education. Um, and um, anyway, we just have, we have incoming students interested in biology and sees a need in that field for better technical communication. And um, so a lot of range within and among our students. When something that's not talked about a lot that really excites me about our program is that we also, as part of it, we've given our students an opportunity to teach first year uh, composition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, one of the most enjoyable classes I've, I've taught was the, the practicum for that course where, you know, you're training and I, I had the joy of teaching a whole bunch of new teachers how to teach at the, you know, the fall 2020. And if anybody remembers what, <laughs> what life was like <laughs> in 2020, where we're like, all right, well, you're going to the classroom and you're also going to be zooming students in and you're going to be keeping track of students and, and only half your, your class can show up and you're, you're doing all, I mean, you, you were, a, a you had to be a, a, more than a teacher that year. And so helping them and comforting them in that process. But it, it was exciting. You know, sometimes we, we think back on, oh, well, you know, like as a master's student, a fallback is that they could always teach a writing course. But I, I always sold it and I talked about it as if you can teach a course, I mean, how valuable are you in society as a teacher? Um, you're going to be a teacher in some field that you're going into. You're going to mentor people. You're going to if you rise up in the ranks, you're going to be a project manager. You're going to, to, to work with people. Those skills of, of being a teacher will benefit you in being a teacher, but also in, in, in any environment where in education, but they're also going to be valuable for you in, in the professional world. And I, I, it was really exciting to see that, that, that was an added, growth part that you, you can't always rely upon someone at the, at the undergraduate level to be a teacher, but at the master's level, you throw them out there into a classroom. And that's really exciting because you're talking about posture imposter syndrome. I mean, I mean <laughs> that that's what you, you, you were, are going to face that the students are going to look at you and you're like, I have to be an authority on this. And you even gave me this advice a lot of just saying, telling those students, that they are an authority on that, that, that they are, that they have the credentials that they can call themselves, um, a, you know, a, a, a credible source on, on that material. And that is a huge step for, for a person to stand up in front of a bunch of people and say, I have the authority to teach you on a subject. And <laughs> I mean, that's a big growth. That was exciting to see that, that we don't get to see in our undergraduate students, but but with the master's students, I mean, just seeing them teach a yeah. first year composition course, it, it was fun. Well, I think it uh, is a fine balance between, and we all, we three at this table know this, being professors ourselves, that it's this balance between, yeah, I've got this, I'm, I'm an expert, I have confidence in what you're saying, but also a willingness to say, 
I don't know, but I'll find out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we tell our graduate students that because they they might be faced in their especially in their first year or two of teaching with questions they don't know. But I love it because I never learned more than in the first two years of teaching composition about our field. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just grew a lot because you have to be accountable suddenly. I mean, I never took, I never, I have a PhD in technical communication and rhetoric and I've never taken a single grammar course. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I, I took one in my undergrad, so don't feel too bad. I mean, I've diagrammed sentences and I can, you know, I can write out a sentence in the phonetic alphabet and things. But I mean, geez, they, I learned grammar by teaching it. We shouldn't admit that. People will wonder what kind of institution we're running here. But, but isn't that a human thing? You're not going to figure it out until you do I, it. I think that's true probably for every every professor across every discipline. You just learn things quicker and they stick, you know, a lot, a lot firmer when you're teaching it. And so it's a good experience for our graduate students. But we would never, we would never put a, a student in that position who we didn't feel was was prepared because we are entrusting them to guide 25 of our mm-hmm. graduate students through a course. They have to be competent and all of our graduate students are there. They're really amazing. Yeah. Well, you've answered the, the, the last question that I had that went right into talking about projects that your students were working on and the kind of research that they were doing and even sharing some ideas about the part of their experience that deals with the classroom. And like you say, most of us, if not all of us who are English professors have experienced that, you know, I I don't think you're condemning any particular institution um, because just about every institution in the United States follows that pattern, right? If you have English before you, you know, you're, you're, you're a graduate student in English, whatever that may be, technical, professional communication, rhetoric and composition, literature. There are these horrible classes that tenured professors at major universities just don't want to teach. And, you know, we call them English 1010 and 2010. And so those are the folks who get trained usually intensely, like you were talking about, Jim, to, to teach those classes. And you, you, you are, you're thrown in at the deep end and you, you have to learn how to swim very quickly. And I think, um, like you said, I think for most of us who have made it this far, it becomes a, a formative experience, an experience that really allows us to become the kind of teachers that we can become. You know, I've probably been at this longer than, than I know I've been at this longer than you two, but we're still, you know, learning those kinds of things. And I think that's significant and important. We, we have a graduate student who is doing some really amazing things. Chelsea is, she um, was awarded a, a service learning grant and she took her students on a place-based uh, environmental excursion. Um, she earned another grant to integrate technology into her, into her pedagogies uh, more intimately and better. And uh, she's doing some interesting things. And in fact, her, she's also defending this week uh, her thesis. Um, and she, part of her thesis, she worked with her 
her composition students, her English, ten, uh, it was actually an English 2010 class, special topics class on environmentalism and climate change. But um, as part of her thesis and part of her work, she went looking for an environmental humanities pedagogy, a methodology, a heuristic or framework, anything to go on. And she really struggled to find one. And I said, well, there's your first research question, build one. And she did, and it's beautiful work. And I'm excited for her to share that with with others in the field. And she'll go on and, and do some important work in environmental humanities as a technical communicator and rhetorician. And um, anyway, there's another example of a student pursuing her her passions through this lens of, of what we teach in our program. Well, I, I know that every, every um, graduate program goes through this, so this isn't just unique to us, but I mean, that skill set of being able to manufacture something out of nothing, <laughs> um, trying to, to it, engage in a project that, that also has the weight of, oh, this is important and I need to, to to put this together by this timeline. I mean, that that's the added weight I, re I recall as a graduate student was, okay, well, I don't have 10 years to figure this out. I got, I got one year to, to come up with an idea soon. And you had a whole year lucky, <laughs> lucky. <laughs> well, I think I started my anxiety early, <laughs> I, but I mean, it is, it's true that that's even a skill set to be able to figure out how to even come up with a project to pursue. And I mean, like I said, I mean, that's, that's pretty standard for a lot of graduate programs is you need to come up with that. But, but I mean, it, it, within our program, I mean, I, when I look at it from the lens of, of someone now, um, teaching in these courses as opposed to taking or, and being a graduate student, I just think of how amazing that is to come up with something that is brilliant. I mean, that's where the imposter syndrome comes out. It's like, I can't come up with anything brilliant. And then you do come up with something brilliant, but yeah. then you still don't believe it's brilliant. <laughs> so yeah. you have to have to, people tell you that it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's this con constant vacillation between confirming and, and, um, corrupting, uh, our minds and what we're capable of. And, and, um, Oh, our, our students do feel it, but this goes back to one of the earliest questions. How are we preparing students for a career? Well, Chelsea's example is a pretty good one. She looked for something she needed that didn't exist, or if it does exist, several of us working to help her find it, couldn't find it. And so it didn't exist for her. It wasn't accessible to her. Uh, it, given her time constraints. And so she was facing a, a pretty serious problem and she found the solution. She created the solution and it wasn't entirely derivative. I mean, all of the information was out there and existed, but she, her original contribution is that she synthesized all of that knowledge in a way that is new and concise and clear for for those who come behind her, for those who looking for something similar, she's now created that. And I hope it, she can find ways to disseminate that because it, it's really good. Um, but that's, that's another way that we've prepared her for a career. Did, does that skill set lend itself to one particular job that she has in mind? No. It, 
but it does prepare her for every possible job that she could potentially come across. So she's doing the work to prepare herself for opportunity. Um, and sometimes that sort of looseness or vagueness um, of our of our field is intimidating. It's a little scary, especially for um, you know new graduates out there seeking employment. Um, it's not like going to school to be an anesthesiologist and you know exactly what your next job is. We have a lot of potentiality in our field and that can be scary, but it can also be exciting. Um, but all of our graduates uh, from the program so far have done really, really well. And um, I, I mentioned the grant writer. She's in the last year since she graduated, secured something like $50 million. I think it's more than that, actually, in grants. Um, we, uh, Another of our graduate students was working for the Utah Securities Division, and her project was to propose and recommend uh, website changes, and she had that uh, approved, and she was given the resources to make that happen, and her website went live in September. And... Um, Another of our graduates applied to several law schools, was accepted to, I think, 11 law schools, and she'll be going to Omaha in the fall, I think, Creighton University for law school, um, and, and others. I mean, there are others who have more traditional technical writing trajectories. Um, but this is what's exciting, I think, about our field is that we're preparing our students to either continue in what they're already doing or um, get there. One student quoted is quoted as saying her dream job, and she got that before she graduated. She was prepared enough that and qualified enough that she secured her dream job. So there's good things happening mm -hmm. for our students in the way, in way of employment. When that luncheon that we had, a couple days ago, I mean, I think it was even Chelsea that said, and it was very impactful to everybody in that room when she says, I can basically do anything now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did this, I, I, now I believe I can do anything. And I mean, that's a, a very profound thing for a human being to say. Um, and we want, we want our, our students getting bachelors to feel that way, but I mean, when they're getting a master's, it, I mean, it, it really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good stuff happening. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that information. And um, thank you for making that connection that we try to make with all of our episodes here between humanities and technology. And this is a great practical example of where this is happening as we speak. And, and, and these last um, success stories that you share are not just proof of that, but inspiration, I think, to those of us who want to see that connection developed and even strengthened here at Dixie State, soon to be Utah Tech University. So we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Joy McMurrin. She's the coordinator of the digital, uh, excuse me, of the English department's technical writing and digital rhetoric master's program. We've had a great conversation. We are moving very quickly towards July 1st. And on July 1st, 
Utah Tech University will come into existence. We will be dropping a podcast on that day. We will record on that day, kind of talking about, you know, here we are in, the, in this new frontier of Utah Tech University. So please join us for that. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, subscribe, listen to all of our episodes. Once again, thanks to our guest. Thanks to Jim for his insightful comments about his teaching in the program. And we will see you next time. This has been the Being Human UTU podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UTU podcast.